This is Contact Mike. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Doe. It's November. It's November. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision, and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast by Sarah Walker. I feel so warmed up in my tongue. And Fleur Kilpatrick. I can recommend making scrunchies. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. Playing weird experimental classical music in the background. And it's going to start. It's going to start. Now. Now. Chapter One. This month in your world, 118,000 hectares of land were handed back to the traditional owners 80 years after they were driven off the white sands of Shelbourne Bay. The Wathati people have been fighting this battle against mining corporations, cattle farmers and the Queensland government for 30 years. And this month, they danced. They danced and sung and celebrated their return to country. Meanwhile, in Canberra, a woman took her grandson to roll down the lawns that cover the roof of Parliament House. They were just two of hundreds who rolled that day to protest against the plan to fence off the lawn from the public. The mass roll was organised to celebrate the intention of the building's architect, who wanted to create a place where people could walk or roll right over their elected officials. The grass was soaking, but the sun shone. The woman and her grandson at the top of the slope counted to three. And then they were off. This month, on December 24th in the US, a young man played Tim Minchin's White Wine in the Sun on loop and felt a long way from home. And two teenage girls in Morocco walked free. They'd been acquitted of the charge of taking part in licentious and unnatural acts with a person of the same sex. The two were photographed kissing on the roof of a house. Then the photographs were sent to their families, who then pressed charges. But now, the girls are free. And they have their memories. The roof. The view. The evening breeze. The pinkish twilight. And that kiss with all its softness and rebellion. Chapter 2 It was just a really idyllic sort of time and they had a creek running through the property and um, it was just in the bush and she would make cookies and... What kind of cookies? Uh, she'd make yo-yo biscuits and they were the best yo-yo biscuits I've ever <laughs> eaten ever and I could never find parallel, yeah. We'd sort of like make-believe and it was just, yeah, the perfect setting for doing all that sort of stuff and it was, yeah, that's probably my most wonderful childhood memories. What was her name? Her name was Dorothy Hockey. In many ways, Ellen's grandma was a stereotypical granny. There was the jam and the biscuits and the gardening, but there was also a love of hard facts, a belief in science and a fascination with genetics. And she wasn't easily flustered. One example of like how totally chill she was, was um, I was learning to drive. 
Ellen was trying to reverse Dorothy's car out of the driveway, navigating past the brick columns with her grandmother calling out, it's fine, it's fine, you're fine, as she edged back. She wasn't fine and scraped the whole way down the side of the car. But Dorothy was unflappable. And she's like, it's fine, just like put it in park. And I got out of the car and looked at it and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And she just didn't care at all. There was a streak of subversion in Dorothy, which she passed on to her granddaughter. She taught Ellen to cross-stitch, a skill which Ellen now uses to make intricate little household decorations, cursive stitching with words like fuck and bon voyage, cunt. I feel like Grandma would have loved that, though. She's a bit of a badass. <laughs> yeah. When I caught, was caught, like, dumpster diving in the Netherlands by the police, <laughs> uh, I wrote it in my blog and she was like, I love it. <laughs> she loved breaking rules. What kind of rules did she break? Probably the main one was... Uh, committing suicide (laughs) you know um yeah I think she probably would have really just taken a lot of thrill from going to get the euthanasia drug I know that sounds really weird and messed up but um I think she would have been like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna like sneak this through a hot security or something like that grandma was born with a congenital hip Uh, dislocation which caused her pain throughout her whole life and um, she was told that she probably wouldn't be able to learn to drive because of her disability and she did and she wouldn't be able to like run or skip like other kids but she still did all those things but towards the end of her life it became really unbearable And um, I think from maybe when she was about 60 or 70, she started going to exit international meetings and started putting a plan in place, really, to have a bit of a a way out Mm. if things got too unbearable. So, yeah, I think from early on, she was really, uh, yeah, planning this. And she would have had to go and get this this nebutal from another country because it's not available in Australia. Dorothy became frailer and frailer, but she never complained. Arthritis disfigured her hands and she could no longer cross-stitch, garden or shape the biscuits the way she used to. That's the thing that really, like, yeah, I struggled with was seeing Grandma just, like, decline towards the end. Mm -hmm. And she was such an intelligent woman that just I knew that it was just you know so awful to her to you know experience that and I she did get pain patches and stuff but uh, they just made her like a zombie so I just remember going over and she was just out of it and I was like that's not the way this should be happening. If you visit the Exit International website you see a plain web page covered in text Purple words tell you that they believe it is a fundamental human right of every adult of sound mind to be able to plan for the end of their life in a way that is reliable, peaceful and at a time of their choosing. Black words tell you that the average age of Exit International members is 75 and a pink button takes you to the Peaceful Pill Handbook. The handbook provides drug options, gas options and detergent options for a quick, gentle and importantly autonomous death. What's it like to to love someone who you know is you know talking to Exit International and planning an exit strategy? It's sort of like a little bit unnerving sometimes because I'd think, oh, what if 
today's the day that grandma decides to do that or, you know, there's always a bit of like a fear, but also like, you know, if she wanted to do it, then I fully supported that at whatever time. Do you remember the last time you saw her? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I sort of uh, knew, like, but the last time that I saw her when, um, that she was probably going to do it soon after that. But yeah, I think everything had just fallen into place and she sort of took my hand in her hands and I said, oh, Grandma, you know, one day I'm going to write a book and um, it's, yeah, it's what I really wanted to do and you, you taught me a love for literature and I um, would basically be doing it because of you and she said, oh, love, I won't be there to read it. I sort of knew, yeah, that that was probably the last time. Do you remember getting the call? It was early in the morning, I think, and uh, Mum came in and she... I was asleep. Mum came in and sat on my bed and she said, "Ah, Grandma, she did it. It was Ellen's grandpa who found her. He got up in the middle of the night and he saw that her light was still on, so he went to check if uh, she was all right and everything, and she was cold. Grandpa, I think, called the police. No, he called the ambulance first. And then the police swooped in. And, um, yeah, five policemen were in there immediately, going through the house, taking Grandma's iPad, Grandpa's computer... In Australia, euthanasia is illegal and people who assist can be charged with aiding and abetting suicide. So Ellen's grandmother had to do it alone. When I think about the um, the really emotional specifics of it, like mm. how she must have felt having to do that because mm. she had to be alone to do it. She mm. didn't have the choice to have her family around her like she probably wanted to Mm. and she must have felt really afraid like Mm. imagine like making this decision I'm gonna take this drug and I'm gonna die and not having someone there with you. Dorothy took precautions her family did not know that she had the drug did not know when she planned to end her life and were not in the room with her at the time even so Ellen's grandpa and other family members were investigated by police and Interpol are involved and everything. Oh, my God. Yeah, because yeah, it's an international crime. Yeah, yeah, Because of you're carrying contraband over national borders. And, yeah. Yeah. Even neighbours and people on the street were questioned. The whole thing lasted 19 months. I think Grandpa, for that whole 19 months, was pretty scared that he was going to be thrown into jail. Oh, my gosh. And how old is your Grandpa? I think he's 85. So Dorothy has died, and her family are mourning, but also being investigated. Dorothy very nearly became the embodiment of the old saying and was almost late for her own funeral due to toxicology tests that were taking place. It's really hard. And there's also media. Everyone wants a statement from the family. We were pretty okay with providing, you know, information to the papers or whatever, just like statements or whatever, because I think, yeah, Grandma really wanted it to be talked about. Ellen's father told them about the Australian law as it stands and what needed to change. He explained his mother's suffering and her wishes and why they were now under investigation. 
The family's activism in their time of grief helped other families protect themselves in the aftermath of euthanasia. I think I read that a family, when their family member had decided to do the same thing that grandma did, um, they just went for a walk. Ellen read every piece of media about her grandmother. It felt important. I remember reading, I think it was in an Age article, and there was something about how uh, Grandma had been preparing for it and she'd been taking her um, possessions to op shops. Mm. So she'd been clearing out the house so we wouldn't have to do it. Mm. And she uh, she enrolled Grandpa in cooking classes so he could take care of himself and all that sort of stuff. So I was like, oh, yeah, I remember Grandpa saying that he went to a cooking class and I remember Grandma clearing out the bungalow and all that sort of stuff. Had your Grandpa ever cooked before? Um... I don't remember him cooking. <laughs> Has um, he cooked for you since? Um, he, yes, I went over to his house maybe a month or two ago and he'd made Anzac biscuits. <laughs> well done, Grandpa. It is not going near the yo-yos. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, yo-yos. Yeah. Leaving yeah. that one alone. <laughs> but he's like living the classic bachelor life now. <laughs> yeah, two-minute noodles all the way. <laughs> Even amongst all of the, the craziness that was going on, there was still like... The normal feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggled quite a bit because Grandma was the first person close to me who has passed away, and I just really sort of remember trying to come to terms with it and struggling quite a bit. You know, just like someone's not there anymore, and you can mm-hmm. never ever talk to them or see them again. So yeah, I just remember having a chat with Dad, and yeah, he said that he also experienced the same sort of thing. With his grandma, like he said, you never really get over the death of your grandma. In June this year, Ellen's grandpa was cleared. The family have continued to be vocal advocates and hope to promote discourse around assisted dying. Imagine being able to do that with your family around you and, you know, whatever, listening to, like, your favourite music or whatever Mm. and being at peace rather than, you know, dying in total agony, you know, without your full mental capacity. Yeah, the only way for a palliative care nurse to fulfil legally the wishes of someone who wants, yeah, to die with dignity, basically, is to let them starve Mm. to death, and that's not dying with dignity. So they can refuse water and food to these patients if they say that they want to die and that's how they can go out. Of Dorothy, Ellen is firm. I want people to know that she knew what she was doing. Like it wasn't like she was coerced into something like I think a lot of people are worried might happen. Like people talk about like the slippery slope of like if this gets legalised then people who have a lot of money might be like encouraged to commit voluntary assisted dying but it's like with anything if there's the proper protocols and legislation put in place and there's safeguards and families can be protected the person who's in the situation can be protected then yeah it can be better for everyone and grandma obviously had a plan like she knew what she wanted to do so why couldn't she be granted her wish I 
I can feel grandma in the house when I go over there. She loved books and reading and she loved gardening. So there's still the big old bookcase full of gardening books in it and uh, Melbourne history books and yeah. I yeah, I feel her presence in a lot of stuff that I do, I think. Yeah, I think I um take after her quite a bit actually. It's a pretty badass lady to take after. <laughs> yeah, I'm not complaining. She's pretty cool. <laughs> She's a cool grandma. Chapter 3 The thing that I think is really interesting about death today with our modern medicine is that at some point, almost inevitably, either you or someone you love makes a choice. Um, in the vast majority of deaths, it comes to the point where someone has to sign a do not resuscitate thing or you work out what kind of medical interventions you want to have or you don't want to have. I know that the vast majority of doctors don't want to receive CPR, whereas the vast majority of the general public do because the general public's understanding of CPR comes from TV mm. where it works 90% of the time, mm. whereas doctors' understanding of CPR is seeing it, it so not rarely. work mm. 90% of the time. I'm making up those numbers, by the way. Um, and also the results not necessarily being you go back to a full and happy life. Often you're returning to a life with extensive brain damage. And a lot of broken ribs. Yeah. <laughs> They'll heal brains harder yeah <laughs> yeah it's actually four years today since my grandmother died today, today. yeah it is oh, i forgot it was so close to christmas yeah but the decision with her i was racing up the freeway with one of my aunts at <laughs> speeding desperately towards the hospital and it was a long drive it was a hospital right in central regional victoria and we got a phone call five minutes away saying you have to decide now Either they operate on her and she probably dies on the operating table or they don't operate and she probably just dies within two or three days. And my aunt was just begging her sister over the phone, just please, we're five minutes away, just please, I'm speeding, please, we'll be there. And so they held off that five minutes and we got there and we ran in and my grandmother was actually conscious. So we put it to her and we said, so if you do survive the surgery... There's probably going to be a colostomy bag and you will have to move into a home and you won't be able to stay in your home. And she said, well, I don't think that sounds very good, does it? And I really remember that she was holding her hanky so tightly, but she didn't cry and she made the decision to not have surgery and to die instead. And that's an incredible, brave thing to see be that someone dealing with a terminal illness or someone who has just been told you have an infection that perforated your bowels how do you want to go out and she just said I don't want to be in pain and the doctor said we can do that for you I think the interesting thing about the way that we as a society approach death these days is we we seem to approach it as though it's not an inevitability for all of us mm-hmm. I think part of what really fascinates me about the anti-euthanasia movement is this kind of idea that, no, no, you keep fighting, you keep fighting, as though if you fight hard enough, you just won't die. 
eventually if like if you really have enough strength of mind and strength of character you just will get over it and somehow magically live forever we only kind of accept and allow it when it's like oh we did literally everything that medicine could do and you are a shell of a human being Mm -hmm. that's the only time that we'll kind of accept and let it go I, I just can't imagine that a lot of the people who are really strongly anti euthanasia, I can't imagine that they've honestly seen someone die in, in, in a bad way, in agony, the way that so many people have to. Because I, I don't understand how you could see that and not be supportive of a kind of death. There's sort of two ways death from a medical illness goes. One way is long and drawn out and horrific, and the other way is short and horrific, mm. usually. And often I think at those moments that are short, you realise how few conversations you've had and how chaotic those moments of coming to the end of life are and that suddenly there's all these other people involved in your death that weren't a big part of your life that you've never met before. There's that nurse standing there at the foot of your bed as you die and as beautiful and unobtrusive as many medical practitioners can make their life, still there is this sense of all of these others descending on your body and putting things in it and taking things out of it and that is not something that euthanasia is going to fix or change by any means. I think a fair bit about that chaos and what conversations might have already happened that might have made that feel less okay Mm. (laughs) got to make this decision right now Mm. how do you want to die what are we going to do what level of pain can you put up with yeah at what cost will you keep living yeah now when you're in so much pain when you're confused and frightened Mm. and exhausted make the biggest decision of your life about how to end it Mm. And there's a phrase that they use in the literature around this, which I really like. There's there's DNR, do not resuscitate orders. But there's also the phrase, um, no heroic measures. And that people can say, all right, what I don't want is anyone being a hero and going, I I just know we can bring them back from the edge. And (laughs) then, like, I'll be a hero and they'll be brain damaged and have a terrible life for the extra three days that I bought them, mm. but I would be the hero. <laughs> Heroic you know. measures. That's great. Yeah. Mm. My mum has this amazing ability to just be nearby when people drop dead. And so she's on several occasions had to perform CPR on someone just so people feel like something is being done. Once she was down at Wilson's prom on quite a, um, uh, an uninhabited beach and there was a family and their father had had a heart attack in the water and they'd kind of dragged him back. And he was, uh, he was just so dead. But you can't just say, look, your father's passed away. So she performed CPR for about 45 minutes. Um, 45 minutes? Yeah, until finally an ambulance was able to get there. And the family were so grateful that someone had tried, mm. inverted commas, tried. We kind of perform this event mm. uh, in a way that makes people feel a little kind of more closed. It gives people a little more closure about it. Mm. What would be your ideal last words? Do you go for do you go for like sweet honesty? Do you just say thanks and goodbye, or do you go for for cleverness? Like, do you go for a good a good quote? I, I loved I loved the Oscar Wilde. You know, like, either those curtains go or I do. Yeah, that's great. That was that was pretty impressive. I wonder if he wrote those words and then was like, I've just got to wait till I'm just sick enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and then like he said them and then he maybe doesn't die for another three hours because yeah, like, just I can't lying there say anything like, else. Yeah, they're like, How are you feeling, Oscar? He's like, mm-hmm. No, I can't I'm sure. It was a really good one, you guys. <laughs> <laughs>
When my grandmother died, we sung her out. We sung her a lot of hymns and spirituals and things like that. And so I don't know if there's last words for me, but I like the idea of going out to my family singing. Mm. You're benefited by a family with beautiful voices. <laughs> yeah, some family singing <laughs> might not be. <laughs> yeah. Family musicians are going to be a good way to go out. Mm. Just some good harmonies. Oh gathered around the bed yeah i want that i want a little choir of Do you want my deep... family singing no i want a choir yeah. of deep voiced men please <laughs> okay. singing in harmony if we can organize that that's going in my uh in my list yeah i don't know i don't know if i have like a aspirations of some awesome bon mo at the end of my life but <laughs> um i think it would be great to like have a party mm. and have nice music and be able to talk to the people that i'm close to and say hey been pretty great hey um remember that cool stuff that we did through like most of our lives Mm. that was awesome and um you know keep doing cool stuff Mm. i'll see you on the other side Mm. or not so we've been discussing some pretty full-on stuff in this episode and i think it's important to say that we've been discussing euthanasia which is sometimes being called suicide within the context of this podcast but is by most people considered to be quite a separate thing but we just wanted to also remind people that if they are in trouble if they are suffering if they are having dark frightening thoughts and are scared for their own safety uh to contact lifeline and talk to people because you're worth that care and love and support so go get some This is our 12th episode and the end of a whole year of making a podcast. It's true. It's really amazing. So we're going to take a month off in January, maybe more. We'll see how we go. Please, if you've enjoyed the podcast this year, if you've just found us or if you've been listening all year, subscribe firstly on iTunes. That makes a massive difference. Write to us. Let us know what you've enjoyed, what you want more of, less of, anything like that. We'd love feedback and tell people about it. That would be the best Christmas present you could give us would just be to spread the word and let people know that we've been working real hard all year and telling some good stories. Don't be shy about leaving us a review. And if you know someone who's got an amazing story that you think you'd like to hear us tell, please get in touch. You know, we won't be leaving you with nothing to listen to over January. We're going to pepper you with a few little bits and pieces that we've been collecting over the year. So there'll be stuff to keep you entertained throughout the first part of the year. And we'll be back with more amazing stories. This has been Contact Mike. This episode ends. This episode ends. Now. Now. Quick, everybody say something funny into a microphone. What's a dentist's favourite time of day? 2.30. It's the only joke I can (laughs) ever remember.